Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garrison. This is the fun-sized edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions on your behalf is none other than producer Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how are you? I'm I'm doing well, Mick. I'm uh, fresh off the picket lines. Yes, you are. Sore feet and all. Sore feet. My my feet hurt more than I think they've ever hurt in my life. <laughs> well, maybe you've been walking more than you've ever walked in your life. That's true. I, I am averaging like 25,000 steps a day, which is... Uh, That's a good number. That's got to be like 12 miles. I it's I don't know I don't know what it translates to but uh, but my feet fucking hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I would also like to thank our audience for their very kind messages of support and everything. I I was knocked out by COVID for about a week, but I'm completely back to normal. Uh, it wasn't too bad. It just I sounded really bad. I can I can attest to that. He sent me an audio message, and it was the most terrifying thing I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> but I'm I'm back to normal. I'm a hundred percent and raring to go, and yes. eager to be assaulted by your questions. Ah, yes, and we have plenty of questions to assault you with, Mick. Um, so uh, our first two questions stem from our last episode, which seems like ages and ages ago now because somebody got sick uh, somebody, yeah. somebody uh dave asks uh what do you think makes psycho 2 one of the greatest sequels of all time <laughs> well we don't really speak in such uh elaborate terms about any movie in particular it is a great uh, movie and a great sequel and the script is great the concept was great the execution was great you had both a writer in Tom Holland and a director in Richard Franklin, particularly Richard Franklin was a student of Hitchcock yes. and studied him inside out. I think there are a couple of good sequels to Psycho. <laughs> uh, well, and, uh, why, why would you say that, Nick? <laughs> one of them is called Psycho for the Beginning that I directed. Yeah. So I won't take this as a personal slam, this question and the form that it takes, well, but rather fair, a supportive. Psycho, Psycho 2 is celebrating a milestone anniversary right now. That's right. That's right. And it deserves all of its attention. It's a wonderful movie. And it was made, unlike many sequels, made with a lot of respect for yeah. the original and an imagination to expand upon it rather than to just make a retread of it. It's uh, it's also been fun to see kind of people discovering it and rediscovering it. Uh, yeah. you know, even, even Scream 6 had a reference to it uh, when they were doing kind of their meta horror commentaries. They, they, they both turn to each other and say, Psycho, Psycho 2, underrated. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, it was very well reviewed when it came out and it was a big hit for universal and I, back in 82 I, I think i believe it that was it was before my time but you know what i actually the first psycho sequel i ever saw though mick was psycho 4 a uh, good introduction well uh, what's what's I, interesting about psycho 4 was the original writer joe stefano who wrote hitchcock's movie wrote our script and it basically ignored two and three 
Um, and, you know, two and three were both really good and really stood on their own very well. But, but Stefano made the choice to just re, only refer to the original Psycho and barely any reference to anything that had gone on in the 30 years between those two movies. I would argue that there's no bad Psycho movies. There you go. <laughs> Fair enough. So that's that's how I will retort uh, uh, the slights of Psycho Four. And this- <laughs> uh, all right, and we'll- of course I say it all with a sense of humor. I think yes, Psycho because we 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 best. love our recent guest Tom Holland, and we were happy to have him back on the slab. And we love uh, the movie, and we do. Uh, well, speaking of Tom Holland and that conversation, uh, Puppet Regime writes, "I was listening to your interview with Tom Holland." And you mentioned going from food stamps to working for Steven Spielberg. That resonated with me. So I've been wondering, before Amazing Stories, what kept you on the path during the food stamp years? How did you get your foot in the door and keep it there? Well, it was through naivete in, uh, for the most part. The, I didn't think that it was impossible to, to get my material to people who might appreciate them. Whereas in reality, it is close to impossible to get the, the right eyeballs on your material. Yeah. But I was also working in sideline jobs within the industry. I was doing specialized publicity for Avco Embassy at a time when they were putting out movies like The Fog and The Howling and Escape from New York and Scanners. And then the head of the studio of Avco Embassy at that time, Bob Ramey, moved to Universal and it was perfect timing then because they were putting out The Thing and Conan and American Werewolf in London and Videodrome. So Bob Ramey brought me over to continue that. So I was able to make making of documentaries uh, for next to nothing, um, as opposed to the vendors who came to the publicity departments and they would charge 90 to $100,000 to do a, an electronic press kit. And I would do it for $12,000. And so I didn't get paid, but that didn't matter. I was learning, teaching myself how to put pieces of film together in a narrative form. So there's always a way. But more than that, I was always writing at home on weekends and at nights. And just because I was driven to, to write, I wasn't driven to succeed, but I was driven to write and by the creative muse. And there's always something that you can do to make yourself a better artist and it's not about pursuing success so much as it is pursuing excellence. Two, two follow-up questions to that. First, uh, do you think being around all of that early 1980s genre movie publicity kind of inspired you to be like, I like this kind of content, I wanna write and create in this kind of content, uh, I'm watching people make these types of movies around me. I can do it too. Do you think there was a little bit of that? Uh, yes and no, but I had always been drawn to the genre sure. since my very earliest years. Although I know, I know that, but I'm yeah. saying like, but seeing kind of that surge, that seeing that it could be that, possible yes. by people who, yeah. I mean, I was also doing interviews for the Z channel before I got hired by Avco embassy. So I was interviewing John Carpenter and, Steven Spielberg and David Cronenberg and all these people and seeing that they were real human beings too. They may have been gods in their work, right. but they were also people 
who work their way up, some of them through film school, some of them through just writing something terrific and selling it or getting cobbling together $300,000 to make a movie that became a successful movie that launched careers. So it didn't seem impossible to me. It seemed highly unlikely to me. Right. Uh, but I went ahead with blind naivete that allowed me to continue doing work and actually making submissions to Hollywood agents who under normal circumstances, I would think would be completely impossible to approach. I feel like blind naivete is the thing that drives us all to success. Uh, <laughs> one, yeah. one other small question, I guess, be between the transition, because we all, we all know the story about when uh, your strip got coverage done at Amblin and that led to Spielberg calling you and hiring you on amazing stories. We've, we've documented that very well <laughs> Often. on this show. Uh, but I don't know if we've documented so much how you got your material to your first agent. I went to a few agents and, you know, most of them are not looking for something, but right. I, I met somebody who was working in the mailroom uh, named Judy Hoffland. Uh, I think it was at William Morris. I'm not sure she wasn't an agent, but she read this script yeah. and really loved it. Which one, which one was it? It was called Double Vision, which became Chocolate years later. Ah. Um, and it was based on my short story, Chocolate. And she had read and really loved it. The ironic thing is, years later, Judy became a hugely successful uh, producer. Lots of big Hollywood movies and the like. And she liked it. And she got some interest from people within William Morris, who became my first agents. And Rick Jaffa, who has been on the show, and he and his yes. wife, Amanda Silver, have become very, very successful screenwriters. They only wrote a little movie called Avatar 2. Yeah, uh, you might have heard of it. <laughs> the Way of Water. Yes. Um, but really terrific agent who also really worked on my behalf and really thought that I would be somebody who would be a, a good match with Amblin and the Spielberg operation. And so it was through, it was getting an agent through the back door yeah. and somebody who's not way up the ladder, who's going to ignore any newcomer, right? but somebody who thinks I can help myself become an agent and yeah. have some success with this material that I think is, is worthy of taking out to producers. Yeah. The last thing I expected was to end up my agent, getting an agent at William Morris, and then that agent getting a script to Spielberg and leading to a phone call saying, hey, kid, you want a job? <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, moral and lesson to remember to be nice to everyone you meet in Hollywood, including the assistants, because they can help you. They can be gatekeepers who can open doors for you. And uh, like you said, she ultimately became a big producer in her own right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, 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 the people who bring you the, the water bottles at the meetings, uh, they, could be, <laughs> they could be your boss tomorrow. So. That's right. <laughs> All right. Chris asks, is there anything that will kill a film for you? For me personally, it's cynicism. I can forgive any number of flaws a film may have, if it feels like it was made with heart. Mick, what ruins a movie for you? Well, cynicism can often go hand in hand with satire, and I, that doesn't turn me off. But especially within the genre, cruelty. 
I just hate a mean-spirited horror movie that's just ugly for the sake of ugly, that just rends humans into meat um, in the ugliest ways with no humanity to it, just for the sake of its ugliness, you know, reveling in that. That is one thing that turns me off. And I love genre films and am an opponent of censorship and all that, but I also like there to be some wit and intelligence and, and creativity in a story being told. But if something is profoundly mean-spirited, uh, I'm not on board. Yeah, no, I I, 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 I totally get that. Uh, my The thing that always knocks me for a loop is pacing. Uh, oh, God, yeah. Yeah, if, if something becomes too too slow and, and I hate to say it, up its own ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for three hours, you mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, can, I can very much uh, lose interest in the movie very quickly. Um, that's well, pacing is one of the most difficult things to achieve. You can learn how to make movies, how to shoot movies, how to light movies, the sound, the score, the acting, the writing. But to actually shoot and pace a movie is not a textbook thing. It's no. something that requires intuition and requires a, a, a storytelling ability uh, to use the tools of filmmaking to create a ride that takes you up and down and doesn't flatline for three hours. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's, and that's, that's usually when I, I always struggle with slower, more artistic films. We'll put it that way. Uh, <laughs> well, you can be slow paced and be fascinating every That's second. true. That's true. I, I, you know, I, I really liked one of the slowest movies in a while, uh, drive my car from a couple of years ago. I actually found that movie to be quite engrossing despite it being, like an incredibly long beefy how long was the movie it was almost four hours i feel like oh, <laughs> but God. I, I uh I, I didn't see it yeah. yeah well uh it's not for everybody let's put it that way but uh yeah <laughs> uh, but but it can be long if the pace is good well um, you got your money's worth you got four hours worth of movie yeah well i think we got it uh, on a screener but anyway uh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> all right uh friend of the show David Scow writes. David J. Scow. David J. Scow, please, Mr. Garris, <laughs> <laughs> could you enumerate and describe all those trophies you have in your office? Are there any <laughs> we'll never see? <laughs> um, probably. You know, the one. My <laughs> There's most a lot. Recent... There's a lot of them at this point. Well, uh, my most recent, I don't have yet. Uh, it hasn't been sent yet, and that's the Rondo for this. The Rondo Hatton Award yes. for this very podcast, which I'm thrilled by. It is a huge honor to yeah. be to be presented this. We've been nominated a few times, but uh, to actually win is a big deal, and it's voted on by fans, which makes it an even bigger deal. The but podcast of the year, podcast of the year. But podcast I mean, right up behind me, I've got a certified fresh rotten tomatoes trophy for uh nightmare cinema i have one of those too i'm very proud of it most of the awards i've gotten have been lifetime achievement awards going to film festivals at various places around the world which are great honors where they show your work and 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 show a, a collection of work and the like but i've gotten a writers guild nomination for best children's screenplay for fuzzbucket teleplay nice um but I've gotten the uh, Paris Film Festival Award for Sleepwalkers, got the Time Machine Award from Sitches, which is one of 
it's a, a career uh, achievement award as well. Um, I loved uh, the uh, the Overlook Axe, right? It was an axe. The Overlook Axe is fantastic. That's, That's cool. one of my favorite. That that was the Nightstream Award for. I feel like you were about to go grab it, but it's an audio podcast. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but also, I've got a handful of Saturn Awards from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. Yeah, yeah we like and those. Those guys. are really meaningful. And one of the most meaningful of all was the Edgar Allan Poe Award from the Mystery Writers of America that I shared with Steven Spielberg, Spielberg for an episode. He came up with the storyline and I wrote the teleplay called The Amazing Fallsworth and it won best television episode um, for, and it's a, a very famous award in the mystery circles and has been in movies and other things. Uh, uh, plays, Broadway shows, and the like, with the Edgar Award itself. If it look, if it, you're going to have to share an award with somebody, uh, it might as well be Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I'm with you on that. And the, the the great thing is they gave us both copies. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Wesley asks, as we both share the same publisher and Cyclopocalypse Publications. Yes. What can you tell us about the books you have out through their esteemed press? Well, the ones I have out through them are actually reprints of previous publishers. Uh, my first book, A Life in the Cinema, was published by Gauntlet Press originally. And, uh, uh, and they've republished that also as an audio book with stories read by me, by Matt Frewer, by Steven Weber, and the late, great Miguel Ferrer. So that's available as an audiobook through Encyclopocalypse. Um, and they also republished what was originally published by Fangoria, my most recent book, These Evil Things We Do, which is a novel and four novellas. So the two of those um, are available in print and then the one in audio as well. And and I love that they brought them back in print because these were small press publications and they sold out very quickly. And so the ability to have them uh, available again through Amazon and all these other uh, markets is, is really wonderful. So Cemetery Dance was my primary publisher for years. They published uh, collections um, and even uh, hardcover novella publications of some of the stories that later went into other books. So I've, I've had really good luck with really uh, caring and interested publishers who, who've done beautiful editions of these books. Well, and we encourage you all to go pick them up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure Encyclopocalypse Publications would prefer if you pick them up through them. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Either that <laughs> or they, they go through Amazon as well, which often ha I think a lot of publishers use their publish on demand uh, capabilities at Amazon. There you go. Rick wants to know. I'm wondering, Mr. Garris, everyone keeps calling him Mr. Garris. I know. Um, Mr. Garris <laughs> is my dad and he's no longer with us. So. Rick wants to know, I'm wondering, Mick, uh, <laughs> when writing your novels, do you put restrictions on yourself, such as content page counts per day, uh, much like some do when writing screenplays? Also, when will producer Joe release his first novel? Somehow, I think pizza will play a part. <laughs> um, well, 
I don't put limitations or, or constructs on my fiction writing or my screenwriting. Um, when I'm writing a script, I try and do 10 pages in a day. Uh, and, and that's a pretty straightforward goal that I, I rarely have trouble uh, working up to. Um, in fiction, it's so much less restrictive. There's no need for structuring in the same way that you do a screenplay. It doesn't require a three-act structure. It doesn't require budget considerations. It doesn't. So the reason I write fiction is because there are no rules. And I love writing stories that don't require censorship or participation of other artists in the process. You know, I love the collaborative nature of filmmaking, but I also love the onanistic nature of, uh, of writing fiction where it's just me in a room and the end product is gonna be on the page and no one else is gonna have their fingers in it other than possibly a, uh, an editor's input or a copy editor. I, uh, I, I envy the creative freedom you have and find and get out of uh, writing a novel. Uh, oh, it's a good thing I don't rely on that to make a living. For sure. Yeah. I, think, I think a lot of people feel that way about novel writing. Uh, I find it to be um, very a daunting task. Uh, so I would not be expecting my first novel anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> well, and you always work with a, a co-writer as well. I, 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 yeah, I do. I do. I do like to write with a co-writer, uh, which is a little, little harder to do, I think, with a novel. Um, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but either way, I, it's not something that has. Um, uh, it's not something I've been drawn to yet. Yeah. Uh, well, it's also love of language. You know when. When you're writing a, a movie, you're writing a blueprint. But when you're writing a novel, you're weaving with prose. Yes. And I love language and I love the use of its language and I love its musicality. And I, I love the creative use of similes and, and the kind of language that you can do that can be internal as well. And, yeah. and the beauty of the English language in telling stories is something I really enjoy. And I'm also very playful. I know enough about grammar and language to break the rules in a way that I want to. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I try to bring as much of that in, as I can in my screenplays. I, I think you're probably more likely to get my, uh, my memoir, not that Joe Russo uh, <laughs> novel. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't have to say not that Mick Garris. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, all right. Dirk Productions asks, you talk a lot about submitting to screenwriting competitions. What is the best way to approach this? And which ones do you suggest submitting to? Uh, well, I can probably I think, help with the latter part of the question, Mick. Yeah, Joe, I think you're better uh, qualified for this because I've never entered a screenwriting competition. I just know that they exist. Some of them are very, very awful uh, yes. that charge you money and yes. nothing happens and you get yes. agents yes. who who promise to read and review things as long as they get paid a healthy amount of money. Uh, just like taking advantage of any Hollywood hopefuls, whether they're writers, directors, actors, singers, whatever, songwriters, there are a lot of unscrupulous people out there looking to turn you upside down and shake all the money out of your pockets. Yes. But there, it, it is one of the few ways that the legitimate ones actually have a pipeline to agents who are looking for talent 
And Joe, you can probably tell us some of the good ones. Yeah, I mean, I would I would stay clear from uh, small film festivals that you've never heard of. Um, you know, you winning at the the screenplay competition at the Bare Bones Film Festival out of Oklahoma is probably not going to excite uh, agents and managers. Um, but you know, so 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 be leery about that. But but. Um, you know, I think the final draft big break competition is a really well-known one just because of the branding with final draft. And, right. and there's a lot of meetings that get set up out outside in, of LA. Um, the Austin film festival has a, a huge, widely respected um, literary competition. Austin is great. I've been there and it's, it is mostly about screenwriting and it's a yeah. great festival and very prestigious. Yes, if you win that, uh, you're you're almost guaranteed to to get a lot of attention from from folks in town. Um, the Nichols Sundance, of course. Yeah. Sure. Yes, and the Sundance Fellowship Labs and such. Uh, the Nichols Fellowship uh, is a big one because that's that's related to uh, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, uh, and. That gets like if you if you place in you know the top hundred and top fifty of that you're you're definitely going to be read by you know agents and managers around town, um, and you know there's there's a few other ones too and I'm sure I'm gonna miss some of them but uh, you know like Coverfly's got good ones, um, tracking-board.com has a good one that that can get you in front of a lot of agents and managers and do your so, research yeah do, do your, your research, research you know um, but that, I mean that gives that's like five or six right there that 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 if you win one of those it will help get your foot in the door. Absolutely. Uh, More than your foot. It'll get your whole butt inside. There you go. Uh, all right. Since uh, we we missed May the 4th, I figured it's still May, still the anniversary of Star Wars around Memorial <laughs> Day. Uh, I figured we'd end with a question from Daryl. Uh, Mick, what was your most memorable moment from working at the Star Wars production company? Well, there have been several, but the most memorable would have to be the only time I've ever been to the Oscars. I operated R2-D2, as we've talked about on the show times before, but I was living in a little apartment in North Hollywood, and I had R2-D2 overnight in my apartment. Oh, I didn't know this. Okay. Yeah, and carried him down and loaded him onto a van drove it to the uh, to the facility where the Oscars were being held at that time. I have, wait, I have a question. Yeah. Was R2-D2 heavy? Really heavy. And were you afraid you were going to drop him? <laughs> no, because there were a couple of people who worked for Star Wars Corp who helped. Okay, got it. Okay, so it wasn't just like you bear hugging R2 down some stairs. No, uh <laughs> but, I, but I was helping carry him. Yeah. And uh, and it was in this rented white van. And when I went into the parking garage, there were metal pipes hanging lower than the height of the van. And I just skidded right through them and tented the top of the rental van. Oh, but no, <laughs> but it was the top. So nobody noticed. <laughs> oh, you were able to return the van without any issue. <laughs> well, <laughs> I love that. Somehow that happened. But yeah, but going into, into the, uh, the theater and having the rehearsal lunch, I was seated next to Frank Capra. 
and wow. spoke with Frank Capra. Wow. To actually be in the green room in my tux with my remote control unit, my Futaba remote control that operated R2D2 and surrounded by Betty Davis and Jack Nicholson and all these people uh, just being there and actually operating R2D2 by remote control. And one of the most memorable things was um, Diane Keaton won Best Actress for Annie Hall that year. And Betty Davis, shriveled up little Betty Davis was backstage going, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't know what she didn't believe, but it might have been just too modern for her taste. Oh, no. But what a memorable 48 hours that was. What do you say to Frank Capra? How do you how do you open the conversation with Frank Capra? Well, the interesting thing was we were seated at the end of this lunch table and nobody was near him and nobody was talking to him, but I was seated wow. directly next to him. And wow. I just said, Mr. Capra, I have to tell you how much I love your work and how much it means to me. And, uh, you know, it, and he was very kind and we had not a long conversation, but a sweet one. And, yeah. you know, he was way up in his ears in 1977. But um, it is so memorable to this day being able to talk to him. But being on that stage behind the curtain with my remote control and operating R2-D2, and you flip a little switch that would um, activate a cassette recorder that was inside going, you know, and so it, it wasn't generated uh electronically it was just flipping a tape off and on oh that's so funny that's funny <laughs> so well, that was really memorable and will always be a big part of my history and, and you've got an iconic photo from it too so i do indeed sure do i uh man meeting frank Capra, that's really cool i mean that's like that's like today i i told you before we got on i i met eric roth in the picket line uh yeah one of know. our great screenwriters yes uh it's it's amazing sometimes how you can just casually bump into literal living legends. Uh, yeah, it wasn't so casual at the, the rehearsal sure, lunch for the sure. Oscars, but yes, okay, fair enough. Amazing, uh, but uh, well, that's that's a very cool story, Mick, and uh, uh, we got some some new insights into uh, when you operated R two D two, which is which yeah. Is Thank you for the that. Stories are endless. The stories are endless. Well, Mick, uh, we will be back next week with a brand new interview with a healthy Mick Garris. Uh, That's right. <laughs> back at full steam, 100%. And uh, so, Joe, you want to tell everybody how they can ask me almost anything? I sure would like to tell them that, Mick. Uh, you can send us an email at askmickanything at gmail.com or uh, you can reach out on the social medias. You can find Mick at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, uh, or you can find me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram respectively. Thank you, producer Joe. And thanks everybody out there. And if you're enjoying the show, please give us a shout out rate or review us on Apple podcasts or wherever it really helps. Yeah. We love a good shill. <laughs> <laughs> thanks Mick. Thanks Joe. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. 
Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.